Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Barangaroo Studios. You have joined us here at Ausbiz in one of the final sessions for 2020. It is time for the call. We have 10 different stocks as nominated by you, our viewer, and we've got two experts to give you the skinny on what they think of those 10 stocks. And we've got two of my favorite guests on the panel today. We've got Mathan Samasundran from Deep Data Analytics. Mathan, good to see you. Good to be here. And we've also got Gaurav Sodhi from Intelligent Investor. Gaurav, how are you? Hey, Andrew. Hey, Nathan. Nice to see you both. Special bonus points for Gaurav, who's joining us on the first day of his holidays, mate, which we very, very much appreciate. Um, Let's start, if we can, before we get to uh, our 10 viewer selected stocks, let's have a look at the stock of the day. Today, we've gone with Sinlat Milk. Now, this is a company that has, let's face it, not had a very good 2020. They've come out today and basically said that the uh, profit outlook for 2021 is not great. There was an earnings warning last week after strategic customer A2 Milk said it was facing some China-related issues. They're now saying that volumes could crash by as much as 35%. So not great news. Nathan, I'm going to start with you. I'm noticing with um, this company in particular, I mean, shares have halved this year. They were 12 bucks Mm. in 2018. Uh, what's going on? Is there value to be had at this point? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think it, there is value. The question is, when are you going to find it? Um, it could take time. It's the same, almost the same thematic that's played out with A2 Milk. It's main customer, pretty much. And strategic um, shareholder. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so then you've got, I mean, I look at a number of things that are added to baby milk powder. So one of the other ones is Clover. Again, that's come off as well. Yep. Same thematic. It's a volume game. Um, the interesting part about food at the moment is, it's a split sector. Anything that's linked to China, suffering. Yep. Anything that's not linked to China is holding up. Mm. But interestingly, people are not interested in that because you don't get the big bang. Mm. But I think that's where the advantage is. I think if you're looking at the food sector, right now looking at things that are connected to China, it's very hard to know where that is. Um, it's a bit like trying to pick the turnaround in tourism and so forth. Yeah. It's just, we just don't know. It's gonna be patchy, it's gonna take time. Um, in probably a year or two, this will look really good, but it might go lower in the meantime. Mm. Now, do you want to sit there looking at it and suffering for the next year or so? I tend to think of, you want to wait for the things to turn around. When you start to see Dago channels up and running, sentiment turning around between China and Australia, get on it. Mm-hmm. Even if it bounces 10%, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But jumping on it right now, I think you're just asking for more pain. There is no clarity. Um, yes, people tend to think that's when you want to buy, but I think it gets even more uglier from here. Um, I think it'll get more uglier before things improve. So I wouldn't be jumping in right now, but it's an interesting stock. Um, these guys haven't done well. It's a bit like telcos. The online guys make the money, telcos never make money. It's a crap sector globally. Mm. And that's the problem in the milk side as well. So but I think these guys have that play, but it's, it's your play when A2 milk is running. Do you think it's a good example of, of what 
Marx might sort of call first order thinking. You know, we, we make, and you hear it a lot, there's a lot of narrative around markets that sort of say, China is growing, there's a huge market, there's a massive demand for all of this stuff, and there are things that are all ostensibly true. Yes. Uh, and yet, as you say, there are these, there are these value chains mm which are very long, and in, like most value chains, it's really one or two players that extract the lion's share of the value and everyone else fights over, fights over the scraps. You've really got to go beyond that first level thinking, don't you? Yeah, and, and you've got to remember when, when they turn off the tap, just get out. Mm. Don't wait for, you know, you fell in love because you made money in the past, it'll come back. The money in this market going forward is going to be a lot more trading and I'm not a broker now, so I can actually say that. Um, <laughs> you have to trade more. Yep. Um, you have to take the profits and come back into the value trades. So even a growth story, you want to get the value and you want the thematics to be improving. And the thematics for this one is not going to improve in the next three to six months. So I don't see the risk return being in your favor. Okay. Hey, Gaurav, is there something also here to be said about sort of the, the unit economics and the way that the business is structured? A company like Sinlat has extremely high fixed cost, right? So when volume falls, the, uh, the hit to the company is far more than what you might expect due to the drop in sales, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I really like what you had to say earlier on, Andrew, that, that narrative is so important in investing. I mean, I'd go as far as to say is investing is primarily about stories first and about financials and analysis second. You really have to understand stories to be a decent investor. Not because you want to invest in stories, but because stories help explain largely what the share price does and what the market is thinking. And once you understand that, you can come up with an independent narrative as well. I mean, this is a great example. I mean, he's a he's a business that had a perfect narrative. It made um, it's a, it's a world leader in um, in a specialized form of milk. It had one of the best customers in the world. The customer A2 has been soaring, a great performer. Um, China is demanding its product. All this, the story elements all lined up. And if you extrapolate demand and think that higher demand equals to higher profits, then here lies a marvelous investment case. Mm. And, and fast forward a few years and it just ain't so. And it's not so because narrative only explains so much. And um, you know, uh, there, there are the, the value chain um, needs to be looked at and examined as well. You know, yes, milk demand is rising, but that is does not mean that everyone who's in the milk value chain is going to make the money. Um, you really need to identify where in a products products value chain um, the cream, and you see what I did there. Uh, the, the cream <laughs> is going to be made. Uh, and and that's not with the commodity producer. It is never with the commodity producer. It is usually with the brand owner or someone with um, some unique advantage. Which and is why AT, A2 Milk has no doubt got this strategic partnership. Very deliberate move from them. Indeed. Yep. And and they've they've. I'm going to do it again. They have milked Sinlay for everything. <laughs> I mean, um, Sinlay pours in the capital. They do all the hard work. Um, A2 Milk buys their milk and slaps a label on it and sells it. And, and that's, that's, that's a deliberate exaggeration of the business model, but it explains the complexity of, of Sinlay and the simplicity of A2, and it explains why the margin profile of the two businesses is so different. Um, all the work is done by Sinlay and all the benefit is extracted from A2. I mean, you don't have to be too clever to work out where you want to be investing um, in, in, that, 
in, in, the, in that comparison. I, I just think this is a, it, it, this is actually a reasonably well-managed business. I think management has done a very good job of managing it. They're, they're moving now into branded goods. They've made some acquisitions into um, branded goods where they actually own the brand and do processed dairy as well. That is probably the right move, but it's just a very different skill set to a processor, which is what Sinlay has traditionally been. Um, it's it's always going to be an inferior business, and it deserves lower multiples. I mean, this idea that that A2 milk is expensive at 30 times and Sinlay is cheap at 12 times, it, you can't really judge cheap and expensive just on numbers. Mm. You have to include a measure of quality as well. And on, on when you include quality, Sinlay comes does not stack up very well, I'm afraid. Okay, so that's a no from both of our experts. And thank you also for correcting me on my horrible pronunciation of the company name, Sinlay. Won't embarrass you, Andrew. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm I'm more than capable of embarrassing myself. Thanks, Gaurav. Don't don't you worry about that, um, mate. Then let's get on to the viewer selected stocks. Uh, Peter has written in and he's asked about QBE. Now, QBE is a business. Speaking of businesses that have done it tough, um, this is uh, one of our largest insurers, if not our largest. It's been around for a long, long time. One of the oldest listed companies on the ASX. But Nathan, it's got to be said, this has had a very, very rough run of it in recent years. Is there is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I think if you're a shareholder, you probably wanted to buy some insurance when this stock starts falling. <laughs> right. Um, oh, look, it's it's a, it's in a bad sector. Uh, the insurance sector has is struggling. Um, the, the, the the positives and negatives. The negatives is this had a really good track record where they managed upgrades for a long time, and when that stopped happening, it went very bad. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a tough play. Now, um, you've, the, the positive side coming through is the reflation trade. Bond yields rising, generally positive for these guys um, and the US play. So overall, let's, let's just dig into that yeah. a little because I think that's a, a point a lot of people miss. There's 20 something billion worth of, of, free, of float exactly. of, of uh, customers' money that they shove into bonds. So when, and I, I looked it up, yeah. a 0.2% return year to date on that $27 billion. <laughs> so, so just to underscore your excellent point, when bond yields go up, exactly. that is great news for someone like QBE. Yeah, and uh, and the problem is, these guys, you know, I like to categorize them into the, the category of they find dead bodies. Um, they always do, and living and working in the US, there's a time, there's certain periods of the year, you just don't want to be in insurance stocks because it just gets hit by hurricanes, flooding, you name it. and. These guys have had a very bad track record of late running into these things, natural disaster after natural disaster. So it can be choppy, but I know Gaurav is gonna hate this, but it's a weird one, but when this thing is below nine bucks, you should buy it. And it always looks ugly, right? It just, you just go, this is just wrong. But you buy it below nine bucks because it's in the value territory. Don't look at it. The next time the market gets excited about bond yields, this will run to 11, $12. Will it have a, Downgrade? Hell yeah. I mean, this thing has more downgrades than probably Victorian government, but well, it doesn't matter. Well, they had asset write-downs just last exactly. week. Exactly, yeah. and, and it, they will have these things, yep. right? But it's, it's the macro trade on the yield. If you think the reflation trade over the next couple of years, I think there's a real risk in three to four months where, when the US starts to look at the depressed numbers they had for prices 12 months ago, we might see inflation data in three, 4%. Now, that'll spook the market. Bond yields will go higher. People are worried about bond yields, 10-year bond yields in the U.S. hitting 1%. It would not surprise me in three to four months, we see 2%. Wow. 
Wow. Now, if we see that, you will see massive running in these kind of yield-related stocks. In fact, that, that's, that's got implications across For, the board. Exactly. Yes. All I've, since I've been doing these gigs on Ausbiz, yeah. all we hear is lower for longer and interest yeah, yeah. rates. That's, that's, that's what central banks always tell you, right? right? And I can guarantee you through time, when everyone tells you the same thing, they're usually wrong. Yep. It's like every economist tells you the currency is going to 60 cents. It's wrong. Mm. Right now, everyone is telling you it's going to 80 cents. Chances are there's a pullback and the Aussie dollar falls apart. Now, that's the thing that you have to look at in the market. When everyone believes one thing, and it's, it's, I learned that from Gaurav, when everyone believes one thing and they're pricing that in, bet on the other side. The you might be wrong. Play. Yeah, you yeah. might be wrong for a period of time, but it's when it's 80, 90% in the price, it's the other side. So everyone assumes yields won't go up. The risk is they go up. This is a good business that's gonna be around. I don't think it's gonna go bust. So in that context, if you pick it up below nine bucks and don't look at it for 12 months, you'll make money. Uh, I forgot to look at the exact price right now. Oh, it's below a, nine bucks. It's about so eight. It's, oh, so it's a, buy, it's a buy. Yeah, it's a buy. It's an ugly buy. An ugly buy. I yeah. like that. An ugly buy. Gaurav, do you agree? Is this an ugly buy? Well, it's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a half, half agreement. Look, there's, uh, I, I think there is potentially value here. It is cheap. I think the insurance pricing cycle um, is probably due to rebound, and and that's because there's a actually there's a connection between the the returns available on the float and what insurers price their insurance book at. You know, typically, when they're making money on the float, um, the the actual um, underwriting profits tend to deteriorate, and pricing becomes very competitive. And the opposite is true when they're not making money on the float. And at the moment, no insurer in the world is making an adequate return just on the float. So there's there's a lot of pressure to reprice insurance a little bit higher. And, and that should be a small benefit to insurers around the world. And QBE is probably included in that. And I'm not convinced that's really reflected in the share price. Um, the management sort of um, hinted at that as well, that there's a there's a global push for, for higher pricing um, across the industry because no one's making money in insurance. It's a very important sector and returns need to be made. But QBE in particular, um, is a very complex insurance company and insurance companies are very complex businesses in general. I challenge anyone, I mean, we can all talk about insurance, we all kind of understand what it is. I challenge investors to go through the accounts of an insurance business and confidently explain what is going on because I've tried that and I, I found it very difficult. I've tried it as well. It's, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I just yeah. don't even try. It's, it's hard, I agree. <laughs> Yeah, we've actually had um, specialists in the office and try and explain it to us, go through with us step by step what is exactly is going on. Um, I, I'd say we probably understand these things better than most, but even for us, this is a very complex industry. And QBE, because it's been built on 20 years of acquisitions, incredibly complex business. The insidious thing about uh, insurance businesses is they have the ability to basically write their own profit in the short term. Your profitability depends on mm. how many policies you're prepared to write, mm. but the cost of those policies isn't felt until years down the road when you have a risk event. Uh, and that's when you get found out. So, you know, you can go through periods where it's showing remarkably stable profitability, but all that reflects is that you're happy to write business. It, uh, this is a, one of the few areas of the market where I would stay away from at almost any price. I know it looks cheap now and the cycle is probably favorable, 
but it's just too hard. I'm going to put my hand up and hey here and say insurance generally and QB specifically is too hard. Just avoid for me. Just just to throw it in, um, NI, NIB, yep. NHF actually came out today and said they're going to ask for um, premiums to rise by 4.4%. Now, I don't care what RBA says about inflation, 4 to 5% is what the average person feels as inflation. Right. So if bond yields are, I mean, sorry, if the insurance company's premiums are going to go up by 4 or 5%, they start to look good. And that kind of goes to what Gaurav was saying. They're all struggling. Mm. They need premium rises to make it worthwhile. So whether the government likes it or not, inflation is there. And mm. this is part of the cycle. Jeez, there's a lot for viewers to digest there. Gaurav making the point that there's no extra points for degree of difficulty. Nathan making yes. some good points on the macro front as well. I will leave that for you, our viewer, to digest. Peter, <laughs> you've, thrown us, you've thrown us a curly one there, but I hope uh, the guys have given you some good food for thought. Gaurav, let's uh, stay with you here. Rob has written in and asked about Frontier Digital Developments. Now, these, this is a company that uh, develops uh, marketplace sites, but in places like Pakistan and other parts of the world, is it one that you follow at all? Yeah, it's actually one of our largest holdings um, in our portfolios, um, Andrew. We've held it for quite some time. Um, it's a, it's a it's a hairy business, but um, I think um, the strategy, the assets, and the management um, more than make up for the fact that it's working in some um, frontier jurisdictions. So the the strategy here is um, the the business invests in um, companies that. Um, own classified uh, businesses, so real estate and car portals predominantly. So the the international equivalents of REA and uh, car sales, it makes equity investments into those businesses. It doesn't take them over. It, it takes an equity position and supports the founders of those companies with capital and expertise. Uh, oh, I think we have just lost Gaurav. So I'm going to I'm going to give you a hot potato. Yeah, there, yeah, Nathan. yeah, no, 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 um, no problem. Oh, look, I, th I think it's an interesting stock. Um, there is two things that kind of work positive and negative um, on the macro side. Emerging markets, I think, in the next five to ten years will be the outperformers. I mean, it's not going to be easy, it'll be choppy, but the outperformance is going to come out of emerging markets, not out of um, developed markets. Um, so in that context, I think that's an interesting play. Private equity, the good private equity guys with the track record, you've got to keep backing them. Mm -hmm. You know, the stocks we look at, we love, Macquarie, West Farmers, Goodman Group, Infratel, these are listed private equity firms. Right. They do a phenomenal good job in managing their exposures. And, you know, given their track record of late in a tough market, they've done really well. Mm. So it's, it's not without risk. It is high risk. It's half a billion market cap. It's done well, has had a pretty good run. So you're not buying something that's cheap. Uh, would I be jumping in right now? No, but I think it's one I would keep on the radar. Uh, but it's it's an interesting play. It's, it's definitely one that uh, I know Graf's mentioned to me before, um, but it's an interesting one because I think in that space, uh, the guys who are private equity kind of gives you a second layer mm. into the defense because I've looked at a number of these things like Ikea Asia and all of these Latin, Latin American auto before, and you've learned some hard lessons losing money at the start. So following those stories kind of taught you having some of the smarter guys looking into those and having a diversified portfolio, getting that exposure, is a much better way to get that emerging market exposure because yep. obviously you don't have the feel of the ground, what's happening in each country. These guys do that for you. Yep. Yep. So, and it, they can go wrong. 
Yeah. You know, you've got to keep an eye on it when things are all over and they get into problems, you've got to make sure that you're willing to get out. But I think it's a different, definitely interesting stock, but I'm not jumping in right now because most of those things have had a pretty good run. This is not the biggest gorilla in that game. Okay, so largely on valuation grounds. Gaurav, I think we've got you back now. Sorry about that, mate. You're just making some really good points there in terms of what uh, management here are offering to their, well, I guess their subsidiaries as they make that equity stake. Yeah, it, it's it. There's a major shareholder called Catcher Group, which has been involved in these um, classified businesses for a long time, and and there's a bit of a formula to them. Um, you know, you have to first establish market dominance. There's a monetization model um, uh, that works, um, and they're trying to replicate that and do it again and again and again. And they've done it for many years and done it successfully. And they've taken a equity position in a portfolio of. Oh, it's, it's what, about a dozen or so companies that operate in frontier uh, jurisdictions, so in, in quite hairy locations. Their largest position is a business called Zameen in Pakistan. They own a third of that business, and that's the REA of Pakistan. It actually dominates um, uh, property sales and property listings over there. Now, you might think that, that that's not worth anything, but there's a very large expat community in London and in the Middle East who buys property in Pakistan. And Pakistanis, like Australians, are, are property mad. It's a very profitable portal, um, completely dominates. And I think just that stake in Zameen is probably worth the entire market cap. A South American business called Naspers actually owns the rest of um, the Zameen group, and they've got a reasonable track record. That's a $100 billion business, um, Naspers. So, so there's... A path here that I mean management's talking about trying to monetize um, Zamin. If they sell or list that, you'll end up you end up with you know about a dozen other options to replicate the success of Zamin, or they can hang on to it and just capture decades of um, growing free cash flows um, from that business. I think this is still very attractive. It is risky, and for that reason, it needs you need to watch your allocation um, to that business. But I still think this is very attractive. I don't think it's well appreciated by the market because it is doing something different. It is doing something complicated, but it's still a buy for me. All right, fantastic. Uh, there you go, Rob. So a buy from Gorav, a wait and watch uh, from Mathan. Uh, and congratulations too, Gorav, because that looks like it's gone very well for you guys so far. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about uh, metal, a yellow shiny metal in particular, Mathan, here in Regis Resources. Uh, Ollie wants to know, the code here is RRL, uh, is all that glitters gold? Well, not for the last uh, few months, but it's uh, shining again. <laughs> um, look, it, it's a play on market risk. It's a play on um, depreciation of the US dollar. Um, currency risk and that's started again and I think the Congress agreed on the stimulus package I'll just print another trillion dollars I mean, it used to be in the millions then the billions and now the trillions um, so in that context I think gold is recovering and I think it'll start to ride now the problem for the Aussie gold miners like Regis has been the currency as well so mm. it's gone completely against it I expect in the shorter term there's a risk that both of them go in your favor and I think gold recovers from here because there's no plan B. Every government and central bank's got the same plan, print more than the other guy. Um, so it's a depreciation game. They're stuck in it. Um, and when bond yields get too high, um, and they will let it, let it run for a bit, but once it gets too high, then they'll come out and throw even more balance sheet to try and keep it down. So okay. it's positive for gold. So Regis is a pretty good player um, as Aussie dollar eventually will come back. Um, and that'll be the double bonus. You get the rising spot gold as well as falling Aussie. 
and that should help that uh, recover. So I'm actually very bullish on Aussie gold miners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've got a basket, Gold Road, Silver Lake, um, Saracen, Regis, uh, West Gold. They're all pretty good players. They've got massive margins. Yes, they've come back a bit. Now they're improving the margins. So the stock prices will rise with it. Okay, uh, Gaurav, what do you think? So these are uh, a gold company that actually produces gold and you feel a bit strange saying that but they are in the minority here i couldn't help but notice too their earnings have doubled over the last five years uh, so in terms of an actual business it seems like they're doing the right things do you have similar macro views as to Mathan? i don't think as an analyst i can add anything to the macro everyone has a view no one really knows everyone's guessing no one's right i just think my opinion is not worth a any more than anyone else's opinion when it comes to the macro. So I'll keep that to myself, but let's have a look at the business itself. One of the great um, hidden treasures of the market of the last 10 years has been the fact that the gold sector has morphed from being arguably the lousiest sector on the ASX to quite a, a decent quality one. I would say Australian gold miners are probably the best in the world now, and they're not the best in the world because we have the best gold deposits. It's because Australian management have learned how to manage gold mines as a business first and as holes in the ground or miners second. Um, it used to be a rare thing to find a gold miner who talked about return on capital, uh, dividends, um, things like investment hurdle rates. They all do it now. Oh, I think to, to your point, I, I nearly fell off my chair when I had a quick squeeze at this pre-show pre, uh, that return on equity is outstanding for this business. Yes, as it point. is for a lot, of, a lot of gold miners, Andrew. I, I think a lot, of, a lot of investors have not noticed the revolution that's happened in the gold sector. Um, have a look at Evolution, Saracen, Northern Star, almost all the new breed of gold miners. They actually well-managed, decent returns on capital, um, and, and good dividend payouts as well. Yeah, it, it's something of a revolution. And, and so, I look, I, I think you can actually, for the first time in, in my lifetime of investing, uh, over the last two or three years, you can actually go out and buy a gold miner with some confidence that management isn't going to blow your money up or is actually managing the business to make a return instead of just trying to extract as much material as possible, which was true for a long time. Um, I would classify Regis right up there as, as one of the best, but I also think there's a lot of competition. Evolution is probably my, my favorite. Jake Klein is, is a fantastic um, entrepreneur and business manager. Um, he's, not, he's got no background in mining. He manages these things as a business and he's struck some terrific deals. The team at uh, Northern Star, they've made five or six counter-cyclical acquisitions over the years and, and made billions of dollars by doing that. Um, Saracen, same deal. Gold Road, I think, is an outstanding gold miner. I mean, these are these are okay businesses. I'm not real. It's not really my my wheelhouse. I don't like buying gold miners because I have no idea about the direction of gold. But um, but for those who are interested, um, this is no longer a rubbish industry. This is actually an, a, a reasonably okay industry, and you can I can tell people to invest in gold miners and not have to worry about them disappearing in the next week or so. So a no for Regis, but uh, some, some... But a pat on the back. Pat on the back. I, you, this, you, is, this is as optimistic as Gaurav has been 
in years of doing shows with him on gold. <laughs> so that, that's, that's as good as it gets. Well, I've actually been nodding here myself thinking, I need to take a fresh look because mm -hmm. I, I'm the first to admit I've got plenty of biases when it comes to miners and, and gold stocks. But there are some outstanding points. Ollie, uh, I hope that has helped you. Uh, some excellent points from the guys there. Nathan, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, we're going to talk about Illumina now. Alec has written in, AWC is the code. What do you think about Illumina? Yeah, it's a great business, but a bunch of guys sit there and write checks. Um, look, it's... Uh, for themselves or for shareholders? Oh, not the shareholders. That's all, you know, it's, it's basically <laughs> a dividend play. Um, it's a good thematic for now because we've seen the cycle turn on commodities about four or five months ago. And you had the the original bounce, a bit of a bounce out of the energy, and then you had copper running hard, and all the other base metals have started to follow suit. You've seen the nickel, aluminium, all of them are playing out steel, shooting the lights out. So in that context, commodities are definitely in play, i.e. the reflation trade. All of those things point to better outcome. Now, again, as we said before, emerging markets doing better, more construction play, it's positive for um, the whole commodity cycle. So. AWC is one of them. Um, look, I, I like all of them. I, I actually think the resources mining sector is in the sweet spot at the moment. I know everyone looks at our index and it looks like it's run hard because it's mainly iron ore, and that's just blown out those big three guys and they dominate they're like the big gorilla sitting there. Rio, Fortescue, and Exactly. VHB, yeah. Once you look past them, there are a number of good quality stocks that are turning around. And as Gurev said about gold stocks, uh, we've argued over miners for years. And look, in the past, they do blow themselves up doing dumb stuff. They don't do dumb stuff anymore. Uh, they are much better at managing uh, how they go about it. They're very conservative in you know, risking their balance sheet. So these things are now managed a hell of a lot better. And this is one of them. And it's a good, interesting exposure. Look, I like, if, you know, I like Nicole, I like AWC, I like South32. All of these guys are now turning around. And I think the whole play on emerging markets, commodities rising, is playing out. So I think it's a good play. Um, again, it's not my first commodity that I run to. Actually, my favorite at the moment is nickel because mm -hmm. everyone hates it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I think this is not bad. Okay. Oh, so that's, that is a, a tick from Nathan. Gaurav, what do you reckon? I just... I have to take issue with Mathan. No one hates nickel, Mathan. What are you talking about? <laughs> they don't now, Gaurav. Six months ago, you would not get anyone to look at it. Yeah, six months ago, that was true. Yeah, but it's it, that's turned around a fair bit. Look, to be fair to Mathan, he's been on on these for a while, and um, and and we have too. Um, if I don't, if I can say so myself, there's been a whole selection of of commodity assets and stocks that have been really maligned and neglected for a, a time and Illumina has been one of those we actually own Illumina in, in all our portfolios um, as well um, it this is a, a very interesting business to come back to again and again and we've owned this on and off for a number of years because operationally this is actually a very simple business but in accounting terms and when you look at the numbers it's incredibly complex um, and uh, that complexity often scares people away and confuses people, even though the underlying asset base in business is very simple. So Illumina has one asset. It owns a 40% stake in the world's largest um, bauxite Illumina business, which is called AWAC. Um, and uh, the little jibe, um, the little barbs that uh, Nathan was throwing earlier on, uh, we, we laugh about that often because Illumina has a three-man or four-man board, and all they do is... Um, 
is collect che- uh, collect in, uh, cash flow from AWAC and then decide how much of it to send back to AWAC and how much of it to send to shareholders and investors. So it's a very simple operation. Um, AWAC owns the world's best uh, bauxite aluminum mines, the, the lowest cost assets in the world, the largest best assets in the world. This is actually a very good quality business. Alumina, um, for those who are unaware, um, is is a key ingredient into the production of aluminium. Aluminium starts as as a bauxite um, mine, and they, they get that gets turned into alumina, which then gets turned into aluminium. So it's a crucial ingredient. And over the years, what's happened is that the aluminium market used to be integrated fully, which means that an aluminium producer used to own their own bauxite mines and their own um, alumina smelters or refineries and and what's happened now is that all the three parts of the aluminium production cycle have separated and alumina has a independent market for the first time and this has happened about four or five years ago Um, i'm actually expecting alumina prices to hold up reasonably well here because for a long time uh, it was part of the aluminium production cycle. It didn't really get independent investment. No one was looking at alumina prices and making investment decisions about alumina prices. They were just looking at the aluminium price. And there's a possible undersupply of alumina worldwide. Um, we own this and South 32, which is also exposed to alumina with a very good asset in WA. Um, I, I think both of them look pretty cheap. Um, I, I probably prefer South 32. Um, but Illumina is also a, a very good asset, and I think it's still worthy of a buy. Well, there you go. Uh, Alec, that is our first two thumbs up for the day, and that has some special significance, as regular viewers know, which we'll come to in a moment. Now, gents, I'm determined to end the show without having a hard uh, wrap on the final few stocks because <laughs> we always gas bag too much at the first part of the show, and we're already behind time. So if we can, let's speed this up a little bit. In talking about Iris Gorev, I'm going to stay with you here. Wong uh, has written in, IRE is the code. What do we do with Iris? I would sell Iris from here. This is a reasonable quality business, but the stuff that makes it very good quality also makes it very difficult to grow. Now, Iris makes software for financial services industry, and in that industry, the software is very sticky, which means its revenues are pretty sticky as well, but they're also very difficult to grow. Um, You can't really poach competitors, um, customers, because of their stickiness. I mean, that's a protection and a disadvantage at the same time. So to grow, they've actually been going overseas and buying assets in South, South Africa, and in the UK. Neither of those purchases have been very successful. Mm. This is a company that has a decent base business, but no obvious way of growing. And it trades on 30 times. It's been caught up with a software boom. I just don't think it can achieve those sort of growth levels. And it's fully priced. The quality is okay, but it's not outstanding. For me, this is a sell. Yeah, some good points there, uh, Gaurav. Mathan, do you agree? Yeah, sadly, I have to agree with Gaurav. Um, sadly. sadly. <laughs> Reluctantly. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, it's the last show. I thought I'll have a few go at it, but <laughs> this one I have to agree. I, I actually worked in an industry previously uh, out of US in a tech trading platform. Yep. So I've got experience on how that plays out, and Gaurav's exactly right. You, it's, you're finding the internal systems, and people very rarely change, um, and everyone wants a good deal. So, you know, to make people change, you got to do a deal that's really cheap and then you got to wait for three, four years to get paid and then you try and rip them off as much as we can. Yeah. Um, you know, it's business. Um, uh, look, 
I think it's not a bad business. I think the problem is their growth, as Gaurav said, is tough. The only real plan, given my experience from what I've saw, is they, they need to keep going into new regions. As Gaurav said, it hasn't been great for them. Um, and, you know, I, I left that business when Thomson and Reuters merged globally for the simple reason that the biggest two gorillas suddenly put all their best pieces together to become an angry gorilla. So you just get out. <laughs> yeah. um, and so in that context, I think some of the competitors are massive, global, and it's going to be tough for them to play in that space. Okay. So yeah, it, it'll, look, it'll look okay, it'll look interesting, and they'll call it tech, but it's not. Okay. Uh, so upside limited. So a reluctant agreement there from yes. Nathan. Let's do a quick summary of the first five shares. We started with QBE. What a tough run it's had. I could get a buy from Nathan, but it was termed an ugly buy. So that's about as good as we got there. Frontier Digital Developments, no agreement for the guys here. Although Gaurav saying that it's uh, actually, I think uh, you mentioned the largest uh, position you guys are holding. It's done very well for you so far. It's still got value there. Nathan. Uh, had some positive things to say as well, but just felt it had run a little bit too hard. So we couldn't get him over the line on that one. Regis Resources, some really interesting insight into that industry, which has improved a lot according to the guys over the years. So Nathan, it was a yes for Gorav. It was a no who uh, prefers uh, Northern Star, Evolution and Saracen. Uh, Illumina, we did have two thumbs up here. So a bit of a dividend play, you're getting a 3.9% yield or thereabouts, a very well-run business. Uh, which is interesting. And we also had agreement with Iris as well. Likewise, not a terrible, this is an okay business, but it's, it's priced as a software company that has a lot more growth than this one probably realistically does. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there'll be some changes to our portfolio that we run here at the call. Regular viewers will know that every time we get a consensus buy from our two experts, we will add that stock into the portfolio. Uh, uh, and if we get anything other than that, well, it's going to get the boot. So let's have a look at just how that has performed. Uh, it's been a good week, up about uh, 0.7 of a percent. The month hasn't been bad either, but the uh, full year to date has been, financial year to date, I should say, has been just shy of 24%, which has just been fantastic. Let's have a look at some of the changes recently. This list hasn't really changed much in the last uh, week or two, just because we haven't been able to get much consensus from our experts. But Viva, CSL, Newix, Envirosuite, and Hum have all made the grade. Some stocks that have been kicked out recently, Ordinate Group uh, and Service Stream, both getting the boot. Now to this list, we will today add Iris because Iris was previously in the portfolio. But as you just saw, we had, uh, we had both guys not liking that. So that is out and Illumina will be added. Let's see if we can make any more changes to the calls portfolio as we proceed into the second half of the show. And uh, I'll just remind you gents here as well, the time is a little bit of the essence here. And as usual, it's entirely my fault. You just, you have to stop being so interesting. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's a bit your fault as well. Uh, Gaurav, let's talk about AMA Group. Uh, the code, uh, exactly the same, AMA. Uh, Michael has written in, what do you think? Gee, it's gonna be hard for me to be quick on this one. Um, we it's actually own AMA Group and there's a lot going on here. AMA is a, um, it's an aggregator of the smash repairs industry. It goes and buys up um, independent smash repair shops um, and uh, runs a, a number of brands. Now, that's actually one of the worst business models I can think of. I, I don't like aggregators usually because I think aggregators are usually 
taking advantage of, of what we call uh, multiple arbitrage, or just buying businesses at one multiple and gaining a valuation of a different multiple, and they don't add any real value. That's this is an exception to that rule. This is um, there's actually a lot of a lot of sense in bringing um, smash repairing businesses together, and and that comes because the um, the insurance business is dominated by two companies who own 80% of that market, and so to make any money as a smash repairer, you need to get volumes from those two insurance businesses. Now, smash repairing has changed over the years from being a manual intensive, labor intensive industry to being a capital intensive one. So they now have AMA and Capital Smart, which is a subsidiary of AMA. They pioneered the use of these um, enormous million dollar machines that can repair panels automatically without any capital, uh, with any, uh, any labor input as well hmm. in a, a matter of hours. So the average repair time for AMA is about eight hours. So if you have a smash and you go into an, uh, and go into an AMA repairer, within eight hours, they've actually turned around your vehicle. That's about 80% of their work. Um, and that, that means what essentially you have is a, is a capital-heavy network of repair shops with guaranteed supply from the two insurance groups that turns over inventory or stock very, very quickly. That, my friends, is a recipe for very high returns on capital. And I think this business is capable of, of very good economics um, because it is able to strike bug, um, strike deals with the two insurance companies. Now, it has a 20-year deal with, um, with uh, I think, Suncorp, and it equally has deals with, um, with IAG as well. Um, they actually get access to that data, so they, they know where the insurance customers live and they can open up stores um, or, or take over shops that are in those locations. Hmm. Very difficult business to compete with. Um, it's it's uh, managed by a superb team who own a lot of stock in the company. Um, they have a fair bit of debt at the moment, but that they generate very good cash flow. I think this business is capable of generating well over $100 million in operating profits, and you can, the thing has a market cap of $500 million. We own it at the moment. I still think it's relatively cheap, but just watch out for a potential capital raise because to grow volumes, they still have to buy mm. new sites, and to do that, they may have to hit the market for a bit more money. So I think this is a buy, but just watch those limits because there might be an opportunity to buy in a future cap raise. Wow, great A insight there. Mayhem, can you add anything? Oh, look, he's I think it he's, well, he's done he? a pretty good job and he's been a fan. Um, this industry on a macro basis, you're negative going into the lockdown and God forbid everyone thought, oh, public transport, who the hell wanted to use that? And suddenly the used car sales, all of that thematic turned. Uh, we saw that in the data and that actually gave a really big kick to the sector. So they've done well. And Grove's right, uh, but then he got proved right pretty quickly because automatic turned on him as well um so uh, look i think what he said is all good um the only thing i would say is that i don't know how much of that cycle will continue uh, the consumer cycle is the big unknown globally everyone's got a lot of handouts um, we have second wave all these problems economic structure problems so how long would the handouts go how much are the people going to keep spending Will they be spending on the cars and so forth? I don't know. That, that's where the risk is. It, it's not cheap um, after the rebound. Uh, ignore the last year before the uh, March fall. The previous share price trade, was, we're pretty much up there. So in that context, you're not buying something that, you know, there's a lot of discovery. 
Um, as Grove said, if they want to acquire more, they will have to raise, but it's a good quality business. If you're there, you stay there because they'll continue to execute. If you're putting fresh money, I just don't think it's worthwhile risk return. Okay, so no consensus there as well. And it's always good to have a bit of balance, I, I, I think, too. So something for everyone there, the bulls and the bears. Michael, I hope that has helped you. Nathan, I'm going to stay with you. Kevin's written in. This one comes up a few times, uh, actually. <laughs> Magellan Financial Group, MFG. Oh, yeah. oh, it yeah. always divides people. Oh, what between Graham and me, you don't have to try to divide people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just comes naturally. Oh, it's natural. Uh, he's a boxer. I, I tend to defend. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Magellan, oh, look, how can you not like uh, Hamish Douglas? Um, he talks a Warren Buffett game better than anyone I know. Smart guys, doing good things. They are big, massive gorillas in funds management, but they're not curing cancer. They're an asset manager. If asset prices drop, they've got problems. They are so big, they've got size restraint. It's good since US has been outperforming for a long time. They're on the back of that. Now, a lot that, of US tech stocks. Exactly. Whatnot, so yeah. you got growth play, you got US dollar play, you got US market play. If the next five to ten years is going to be emerging markets, underdeveloped markets, it's going to get a lot trickier. When you're that big, it's not easy to get the liquidity to move in and out. And you know, there's a lot of global fundies out there, and they know how hard this thing becomes. And when you're that big, it gets tricky. They do have diversified into multiple people running different funds that kind of you know, helps them. But remember, in the GFC, these guys nearly went bye-bye. Mm. Um, so yeah. it can go very quickly on the other way. So this is not a cycle where you buy fund managers. You buy fund managers when they're blown up. Okay. And you got trust that Such they can turn it around. Such as the GFC. Exactly. Yep. That's when you turn around play. You, you're or buying or as the graph there shows, I suppose, during a, a global yeah, pandemic-induced sell-off. Yeah. If right. there's a panic uh, and people think they can't do it because they're good enough, you bought back them. Mm -hmm. Right now, most of that upside is in the price. Mm -hmm. There's no real surprise. They are evolving into a model that they're flagging to the market. It's about cost, not about performance. So they're trying to become a pseudo-Blackrock, pseudo-Vanguard, the low-cost player, try and kill off everyone else and dominate the market. That doesn't tell me that they are going to deliver massive growth. Mm -hmm. This is a very defensive approach and they're going vertically through the model and trying to get pieces on every side. Mm -hmm. These guys are smart guys. They are seeing what the market is going to do. The tech guys are coming up with solutions to change the financial industry. That's going to happen. You can't stop that. So they're evolving to the next scale. They can't be competing on price. They're trying to compete on cost. So I think that's telling you it's going to be tough. I don't think you're going to get the growth from it. So don't fall in love with asset managers when asset prices are at all time high. Okay, just not the right time. Gaurav, what do you think? I used to agree with Nathan, actually. This is one stock we, we were in common agreement on for a while. I've actually changed my view of Magellan um, recently. Um, the team, the intelligent investor team hasn't changed their view and they're still, um, will probably agree with what Nathan has had to say that this is a asset manager with a huge number of um, of, of corporate um, institutional mandates and those mandates can disappear. It deserves to be on a low multiple. It's sensitive to the market. All those things that Nathan has sort of said. I think that that's all true. But I think what we miss sometimes about Magellan is that we're used to looking at these fundies thinking that um, there's a there's a fund manager here who just happens to run his own business. Um, and, and I think with Magellan, it's an entrepreneur 
who just happens to be in the fund business. I think the correct lens to view this is not as a traditional fund manager, but as a as a financial conglomerate in the making, and they've just started in funds management. If you take a listen to what Hamish Douglas has to say, what the team is trying to build here, they're trying to go well beyond funds management. Um, they're using funds management as an annuity stream to then redeploy that capital into high returning um, financial products and turning it turn MFG into a compounding machine over decades. And I think they've got the plans, the distribution and the brand in place to do that. I'm actually, I actually think this is a really good opportunity for a long time. I don't think you'll, it, you won't grow at 20 or 30% a year, but I think you're a good chance of, of getting um, double digit returns for a very long time as the company grows into new products and new areas. They've all, we've already seen a flavor of that. They've gone into um, a, a modest investment banking venture. There's income products. There's ETF products. There's a lot. They, there's a lot of ambition here, and there's also a lot of talent and a lot of resources to harness. I'm inclined to back management, and I'm I would go buy on this. Mm -hmm. But I I'm quick to also say that most of the intelligent investor team does not agree, and um, and it, and it is a contentious one. But okay. for me, it's a buy. Okay, some really good points there again. We've done it again, guys. We've got very little time left on show. And I, I, I promise that we weren't going to do this, but, okay. but here we are. Australian Ethical is the next one. Janet Mathan, yeah, yeah, very quick, quickly yeah. uh, for you there, AEF. Um, apart from the fact that they are also an asset manager, yes. um, the thing to remember for them, the key problem for me is the concept of what it is. They actually done really well. I, I think they've done really well in an environment where everything has actually worked for them. So in their universe, they cannot invest in mining. So the last four or five years, the fact that they can't actually invest in that sector has been the best thing happened to them. <laughs> and the things that they can invest in, just you know, all the tech and all the healthcare, the multiples have just gone berserk, right? So Stevie Wonder could pick stocks in this one, right? Now, in saying that, we are going into an environment of reflation where multiples for techs are likely to come back, healthcare will come back, and the resources will outperform. So it's not because they're good or bad, it's gonna go against them. So if you Wrong are in part of the cycle. Exactly, the cycle is going to get tougher for them. Uh, I think they're good, but you're swimming against the tide. Now is not okay. the time. Uh, Gaurav, what do you think? I compl completely disagree with Nathan on this one, actually. And I think most people don't understand this business and they get it wrong. We own AEF and we've owned it for some time. Um, and I don't, it, it looks crazy. I know it's got a P of 70 or something, but you need to ignore that. Um, this is, um, this is an asset manager. Yes, but half of their business is actually in super products and what they do because of the ethical tag, they attract very young investors who have, who put a portion of their money in and their income grows and they get an automatic increase in the funds going into their business. So you look at the fund increase. Um, it's been remarkable over the years, and that's just automatic. That's like an annuity stream just increasing every single year. Um, the uh, brand value is incredible here. Anyone who wants to invest in ethical, this is almost the default choice. And we know what's happening um, to um, to the to, to funds in that space. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think in in terms of earnings, what you'll see here is a is a quite a dramatic um, J curve. As um, as the investment cohort, investor cohort actually gets older, starts earning more money, more of their income goes into that super business, and it, it all spits out as 
earnings on the bottom line. I think there's a tremendous amount of growth here, um, completely misunderstood by the market and still a buy for me. Okay, there we go. That's three three for three from Gaurav in terms of the buys. Let's stay with you, Gaurav, if we can. And uh, geez, if these are the short answers, guys, I, I hate to see the long ones. <laughs> let's talk Let's talk about Big Tin Kang, BTH. Steve wants to know, Gaurav. Uh, yeah, I can be very quick on this. Sell for me um, and avoid. Um, I just don't see any competitive advantage. I know they've done very well, but this is a software business that runs entirely on, um, on Salesforce and it's a very simple product with a very strong sales team. So the this is really a, a sales-led product, a sales-led business. Um, it's it's a weak competitive advantage, and I'm not convinced that the the product actually adds all that much value compared to um, what what the valuation is telling you here. So I'm I'm pretty happy just avoiding this. Stay away, according to Gaurav Mathan. Yeah, it can be quick. Ah, uh, look, this is one of those tech darling small caps that uh, done really well, um, but. As with any tech at the moment, reflation trade, multiples have to come off. I think this is okay, uh, but it'll be trading at a lower multiple. So now is not the time to jump in. Okay, so last one for the day. And this is, this is gonna be super hard because there's so much to say. On one hand, we're talking about uh, an ETF here, the one in question, BetaShares Global Banks, BNKS. Raj is interested on that. Why this is a, a potential landmine is that there's so much we can say about banks. Uh, so it's gonna be tough but I'm gonna to have to really restrict you to 10, 20 seconds each. Nathan, go. Oh, look, it's, it's a global trend. Banks all trade together, so irrespective of what you think. Banks are crap yep. model. Uh, fintechs are going to cut into them. It's a currency trade. So US dollar falls, these things do okay. Mm. Um, valuation's gone from all-time high, low to all-time high because the earnings are still falling. Um, it's government backed. Number of the banks in Europe will be socialized. Um, so do you wanna be sitting there, um, you know, worried about the economic cycle and governments bailing you out? No. Um, over the next five to 10 years, this is not the sector to be in. Okay, Gaurav? Uh, look, again, I think it's it's very fitting that me and Nathan finish off um, disagreeing with one another, but I actually think this is okay. Um, <laughs> Australian banks, I'd be very careful about. In, in terms of their international peers, they're very expensive and they're good franchises, but they're not doing anything in terms of business model that's unique, except investing a whole lot of their assets in, in mortgages. Um, internationally, you can get very good quality banks well under book value at the moment, wouldn't be my favorite investment, but um, it's not a, the worst idea in the world to go off and buy some a portfolio of international banks, and this is a sensible way to do it. Bye. Okay. Well, let's, let's do a super quick recap here. We had uh, uh, very little agreement from the two gents in the second half of the show. AMO, a, a buy from Gorev, a no from Nathan. Magellan, uh, likewise, same thing again. Australian Ethical, same thing again. When we got to Big Tin Can, though, we did have agreement there. Uh, neither of the, the gents like that too much. And on the banks, we had a yes from Gorev and a no from Nathan. Uh, I'm going to get the timing right one of these days. Today wasn't the day, though, but I think you will agree we had some incredible incredible, insightful perspective from the two gents, which is what makes it so interesting. Uh, remember, if you want to dive into all of the stocks that we're tracking here uh, at the call, it's really easy to do. Just go to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio, find out all of the detail that you need. And please too, remember that we're, we're doing this right up to New Year's Eve, and then we're going to be back very early in the new year as well. So send some questions through. If there are any stocks that have caught your eye, you can tweet us at osbiztv or email uh, the call at osbiz.com. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.